Hi, everybody, and welcome to the All Saints podcast. So today is the final episode in this little series of uh, podcasts that we've been looking at, uh, going through Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion and this section on the life of the Christian man in uh, book three, Uh, chapters 6 through 10. And I say this is the last one, you might be a bit surprised to hear that because the previous episode only got us to the end of chapter, uh, of section 8, sorry, chapter 8, and that leaves us with the whole of chapter 9 and chapter 10 to look at. And I want to cover these in one session uh, for a couple of reasons. They're somewhat dependent on each other, and so it makes sense to see them together. I also think uh, that they're not as good and helpful as the previous uh, chapters. I think actually Calvin makes a couple of mistakes here. Um, and I say that uh, with a degree of hesitancy, uh, but I think he has, he's got some at least mistakes of emphasis, uh, which mean that an extended reflection on all the details of this isn't going to be so immediately profitable to us. But that said, uh, even though I'm wanting to take issue with um, Calvin uh, at one or two points, uh, there's a lot in here which is still valuable, and I want us to spend a bit of time looking at that. And furthermore, I think if I'm going to say, well, look, I, I disagree with the at least the tone or the emphasis of what Calvin says here. Uh, he is a theologian of such stature that I owe it to him uh, and to you to give some explanation of this, and then maybe that explanation may be helpful as well. So I'm not going to look at it in quite the detail as I have done the previous chapters. What I want to do is to summarize uh, first. Um, chapter 9, and then I'll make some comments about that and uh, some things that I, I want to uh, push back against slightly, uh, but one or two things that he says that's really, that are really helpful. And then we'll look briefly at chapter 10. And again, we'll see that to the extent that it depends on the mistakes that I think he's made in chapter 9, uh, it's not uh, got quite the power and punch of the previous chapters. But nonetheless, there's some really intriguing and helpful stuff in it. And one or two things, which, well, I, I, I'll save it right for the end, the last few minutes, there's actually, uh, I'll talk a little bit about Calvin's doctrine of vocation or calling, and that might have something uh, that's worth, I hope, hanging on for. And we'll hope to get all that done in the usual 30 minutes or so. So without further ado, here goes. We're in um, Calvin's Calvin's Institutes, Book 3, Chapter 9. And I'm just going to read a a section just now, and this will highlight, uh, and probably you'll spot it as well, um, what I the heart of what I want to take issue with slightly about how Calvin approaches this subject. Here goes. The the chapter is headed, Meditation on the Future Life. And here he goes. Whatever kind of tribulation presses upon us, we must ever look to this end to accustom ourselves to contempt for the present life and to be aroused thereby to meditate upon the future life. Just that first sentence highlights uh, the heart of where I want to step back from Calvin and tentatively, somewhat reluctantly, but I think I have to say slightly firmly, I think he's got a misplaced emphasis here. At the heart of Calvin's uh, vision in chapters 9 and 10 are a disjunction between what he calls the present life and what he calls the future life. And he urges us to what he calls contempt for this present life. Uh, and hope instead meditation upon what lies in the future in heaven, as he describes it. Let me read a little bit more, uh, and then I'll make some comments about why I think, uh, though there's some good in this, it's a somewhat misplaced emphasis. Here goes. 
Since God knows how much we are inclined by nature to a brutish love of the world, he uses the fittest means to draw us back and to shake off our sluggishness, lest we cleave too tenaciously to that love. There is not one of us, indeed, who does not wish to seem throughout his life to aspire and strive after heavenly immortality. For it is a shame for us to be no better than brute beasts whose condition would be no whit inferior to our own if they were not left to us the hope of eternity after death. But if you examine the plans, the efforts, the deeds of anyone arises, uh, sorry, if you examine the plans, the efforts, the deeds of anyone, there you will find nothing else but earth. Now our blockishness arises from the fact that our minds, stunned by the empty dazzlement of riches, power and honours, become so deadened that they can see no further. Okay, so what's the issue here? Basically, it seems to me that Calvin has unfortunately set up uh, an unhelpful dichotomy between uh, this life, with its physicality and its pleasures, and the good gifts of God in creation, on the one hand. And on the other hand, what he calls heavenly immortality, or heavenly life. And the problem is not that there's no heavenly life. The problem is rather that Calvin has set up a kind of dichotomy between the two, which sees the two as exclusive of one another, and almost as alternatives to one another. As Calvin unfolds this in the next few sections, and I'll show you this uh, a little bit um, in what follows a bit more, um, his basic point is we've got to learn to have contempt for the things of this world and to fix our eyes on heaven. I've got to resist the temptation to jump straight in and give you critique right from the outset. I want to read him a little, read a little bit more of what he's got to say, and then we'll come to that. Here goes. This is the end of section one. And then only do we rightly advance by the discipline of the cross when we learn that this life, judged in itself, is troubled, turbulent, unhappy in countless ways, and in no respect clearly happy, that all those things which are judged to be its goods are uncertain, fleeting, vain, and vitiated by many intermingled evils. From this, at the same time, we conclude that in this life we are to seek and hope for nothing but struggle. When we think of our crown, we are to raise our eyes to heaven. For this, we must believe that the mind is never seriously aroused to desire and ponder the life to come, unless it be previously imbued with contempt for the present life. <sighs> Calvin, well, I have to just disagree at this point. What Calvin seems to be saying, and there, just you heard it right from his own lips in that paragraph, is that the only way to get the right attitude to bearing the cross is to have our eyes fixed on the future life, the life of heavenly immortality. And the only way uh, to do that is to have contempt for this life. Now, at the heart of my wanting to push back gently, I think, but firmly nonetheless against this, is that I want to disagree with Calvin about the implied discontinuity or dichotomy between this life and the heavenly life. Calvin seems to be speaking here, he doesn't speak in this way always, but at least he's speaking here as though he believes that the things that happen in this life have no bearing on the substance of what glory will be, resurrection will be. It's this life, we must have contempt for that. We must fix our eyes entirely on the life to come in heaven. And I want to say a whole bunch of things at this point. I want to say first that 
Heaven is the temporary resting place between our death and the recreation of the heavens and the earth and the general resurrection and life in glory physically in this world with the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. We are not to think of heaven as our ultimate goal if by heaven we mean a disembodied place that's separate, distinct and unconnected from this world. And that leads to the second point, which is that the character of that world is precisely this world resurrected. Now, this is a big subject and one probably that we should talk about on another occasion. But there's a summary of what I think is the case. And you find this um, throughout um, the Reformed tradition. You actually find it in Calvin as well, which is a little bit puzzling to me why he speaks in this way here. Uh, you find it, for example, in Herman Bavink. You find it in Jonathan Edwards. You find it in all the Reformed greats. The, the notion that the world uh, of glory and life after the final resurrection and the final judgment is a physically resurrected world. It is not an ethereal place. It is not uh, sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. It is not being in heaven. It is this world renewed and transformed. And that moreover, there is a fundamental continuity between the things of this life and the things of the future. Uh, to pick up um, Paul's imagery from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, what we're doing in this life is creating the seed which will be sown in the ground and which will be raised to everlasting life. And therefore, whatever the book of Ecclesiastes, for example, which Calvin has in his mind here with talking about the vanity of this life, look at it again, um, all those things which are judged to be the goods of this present life are uncertain, fleeting, vain, and so on. It's true that the book of Ecclesiastes says that uh, vain is this life. But then Paul, having spent an entire chapter discussing the hope of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, says, always, my brothers, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. There's something about the resurrection which transforms the character of our hope. And therefore, it transforms the character of the significance of what we do here. To put it most starkly, the right way to fix our thoughts on our future inheritance, which is not heaven, it is kept in heaven for you, and it will be revealed on the last day and brought to a resurrected earth. The right way to fix your minds on that is not to have contempt for this world, as Calvin suggests, but rather to see this world as, yes, temporary in its present form and destined for transformation, but nonetheless part of the seedbed from which that resurrected life will flow. Now, this has all kinds of implications for how we think about godliness in the present life. It doesn't make us um, think uh, any less about practical things. If, if you if you recognize that the life you're living now, the body that you're in now, and the, the actions you're doing now are the seed of the life that you will live in the new heavens and the new earth for generations and generations and uh, millennia upon millennia, then you're going to be extremely careful that you're sowing the right seed now. The things that we do now will, to quote uh, a movie that probably ought not to be quoted too much on a podcast like this, the things that we do now echo in eternity. Or even eternity is probably the wrong word for it. They'll echo forever in the time-bound space that we will inhabit then in glory. And glory, as my old friend David Field has pointed out in an essay that I might go through with you on this podcast at some point, glory is the best one-word biblical term for that future hope, not heaven. Heaven is the temporary place where believers go to be with Christ until the resurrection, until glory. And so that's a theological framework uh, upon which I, I, I want to say I disagree with at least how Calvin puts it here. 
even if I think probably he would want to agree with that kind of much, if not all of the theological statement of what I'm trying to push back with against him. Now, just a couple of other comments on chapter nine. Um, uh, this, uh, uh, just, you've just flicked through to a couple of sections on to section four. Uh, you find um, a comment by Calvin, which, um, uh, well, it draws our attention to an important biblical text, which sometimes leads people to embrace the kind of misunderstanding that Calvin is um, highlighting here. And I want to say something about this. Um, this is on page 716 in the middle of section four. If heaven is our homeland, what else is the earth but our place of exile? If departure from the world is entry into life, what else is the world but a sepulchre or grave? And what else is it for us to remain in life but to be immersed in death? If, it, if to be freed from the body is to be released into perfect freedom, what else is the body but a prison? Uh, now, before we get to the biblical text, let me just say that that last sentence, well, no surprise that the editors have footnoted uh, Plato at that point, the idea of the body as a prison from which we need release. I think this is an unfortunate tendency in Calvin's theology at this point. And I want to encourage you to read this. I do not want to encourage you to think of the body as a prison. It's not. It's a good and created thing, created by God for the embrace of all the good things he's given us and for lives of service now and joy and service in the resurrection. It's not prison from which we need to be released. The body isn't the problem. There's more to it than that. But the biblical text that you probably all spotted in the first sentence, heaven is our homeland. What else is the earth but our place of exile? And that calls our attention, let's grab my Bible here, to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12, already verse 11. Um, where Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And here you've got the text that seems to be in Calvin's mind when he describes uh, earth as our place of exile and heaven as our homeland. Isn't that just the case? Now, heaven is not my home. I'm just a passing through, as the old song goes. Uh, earth, earth isn't really where I belong. I'm a stranger here. I don't really belong here. I'm looking forward to escaping from this world and all its physicality and mess and sin and getting to heaven where I belong. Heaven is my home. And I want to say no, because that's not actually what Peter says here. Let me just read it again, and then I'll highlight what he really says. Uh, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's the crucial phrase. He uses the phrase sojourners and exiles to describe our status here in the world. And that does not mean that this is not our home. What it means is that it is not fully our home yet. The reason we know that is because this phrase is plucked straight out of Genesis chapter 23. It's the only other place in the Bible where the same phrase occurs. It's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this um, uh, ref, uh, Genesis 23 contains the account of Abraham's negotiations with the Hittites uh, in the land of Canaan. Uh, when he's trying to find a burial place for Sarah, his wife, who has just died. And he says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. The same phrase translated uh, alien, or uh, sojourner and exile in First um, Peter, Peter 2. I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. 
And they have this big long negotiation. You remember they want to give him some land because they're so warm and warmly disposed towards him. But Abraham uh, doesn't want to receive the land as a gift. He insists on paying for it in the back and forth. It's like the kind of the reverse of the caricature of the market trader trying to haggle you up. Abraham is trying to haggle them up so that he can pay. They're not trying to haggle him up. Uh, it's the, kind of the opposite of what you'd expect. And the reason is, it's quite a subtle point, Abraham realizes that this is the inheritance that God has promised him back in Genesis 15. This is the land that he will, or his descendants will come to inherit. But it's not his land yet. It will be his land, but he doesn't want to undertake what would amount to uh, almost a de facto partial conquest at this time, because God has said you've got to wait 400 years until the iniquity of the Amorites has reached its full measure, Genesis 15, 16. So he's got to wait until he comes into the ownership, or his descendants do, of this land, which will be their home at that point. In other words, this phrase, sojourner and exile, does not mean this place isn't my home, I've got to get away from it. What it means is, this place will one day be my home. When the eschatological hope is fulfilled, I, or my descendants in this case, will most definitely live here. It will be mine because the Lord has given it to me. I'm not trying to escape from it. I'm looking for a future in which I will possess it forever with my, inherit with my uh, offspring. And that's the meaning that Peter picks up in 1 Peter 2. Uh, he's not saying um, you don't belong here. He's saying we're in this strange time at the moment where we don't belong here yet. At the moment, yes, I mean, he's writing before the destruction of the temple and the final end of the old covenant, which probably has some, something to do with it. But even now we can look around us and say there's a sense in which the Christian possession of the world has not fully been inaugurated. But it doesn't mean that we're longing to get away from it. Christ is the heir of the nations. Uh, the Lord God has given him the nations as his inheritance. And just as uh, Joshua uh, was to lead the Israelites into the promised land gradually, bit by bit, I'll give you the land, God said in uh, Deuteronomy 7 and Exodus 23. So the church now is following the lead of the greater Joshua, spreading out across the world and taking possession of the land, which is our heritage and will one day be seen to be. In other words, to bring all this back to Calvin, we're not saying with Calvin, uh, heaven is my homeland, this is my place of permanent exile. What we're saying is this world, with all its physicality, with all the good gifts that it contains that God has given us, will be the possession of the people of God forever. And we are therefore supposed to live now, and this is the key thing that we ought to be saying in relation to Christian godliness, we ought to live here now as those who are building for a future that will last forever. Why would you want to build with ungodliness and lack of principle and lack of integrity and cowardice and shrinking back from worshipping the living God and shrinking back from speaking out for him? When we ought to be living with truth and integrity and joyfulness in all the good things that God has given us, we ought to be speaking the gospel to people around us. We ought to be worshipping him joyfully and wholeheartedly, knowing that this world, when it's resurrected, will be the place where we do that forever. That's how we ought to be living. And this chapter, I feel terrible saying this, but I'm sure Calvin, now that he's in heaven awaiting the resurrection, could wish, would wish that he could come back and rewrite this one and he'd do a far better job than I've just tried to do off the cuff. So that's my, that's my gripe with um, this chapter. And really the, the next chapter 
uh, succumbs to the same sort of uh, problem. Uh, it's very heavily dependent um, upon uh, the theological framework in chapter 9, and so it's, it suffers from all the, the same uh, shortcomings. So what are we to say positively? A couple of things, I think. The first thing I want to say positively is, oops, dropping things, making a racket. Um, I do want to say something positive about the underlying pastoral concern that I think Calvin has. I mentioned already that there's lots of good stuff here, even though I want to say I disagree with the underlying theological framework. And because here's where it really hits home. For all that we say about the fact that this world is a marvellous gift from God. All the things in it are gifts from him to be redeemed and used by his people to glorify him and to be to be enjoyed uh, as his people in faithfulness and obedience to him. We might say all that, and yet at the same time, it is perilously easy to misuse the things of this world, to use the gifts that God has given us in an ungodly way, or to become anxious or acquisitive or covetous in relation to them. And one passage of scripture shouts and screams at me more loudly than any other um, when I think about that. And I'm sure it's the kind of thing that's in Calvin's mind. And before we leave this, we ought to at least alert ourselves to this danger. Because even if Calvin's um, theological framework for what he says has got a few glitches in it, nonetheless, the pastoral concern remains. And we ought to hear the argument that Calvin would want to make in the right way and with the right um, scriptural framework behind it. That scriptural framework comes loud and clear from Luke 12. This is where Jesus um, tells the parable of the so-called rich fool. There's um, a crowd of people um, all kind of gathering around Jesus and talking with him. And someone in the crowd shouts out a question. And just think about this for a second. You know, that's your moment. right? You get to shout out a question to the Messiah. What would you want to ask? Of all the things that you could ask him to do, to heal your sick mother, to heal your dying child, to save all the men and women in your village, whatever you'd ask, what would you ask? Well, this man says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Please intervene in my petty domestic argument with my brother who won't give me what I regard as my share of the inheritance that's been left to me by my uh, father, presumably, or parents or other relatives. No doubt a significant issue, but really, is that the thing that you want to bring to the table to discuss with the Son of God? And Jesus says, well, he's about as unimpressed with the question as you can imagine. Who made me a judge and arbiter over you? Who appointed me as the person to sort out your petty domestic gripes? Can't you sort this out yourself? And why are you so concerned about this? He goes on. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Then he tells him a parable about the rich man, his land produced abundantly, and all he can think about is his wealth, me, 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 me. What shall I do? I'll have nowhere to store my crops. I'll tear down my barn, build bigger ones, store my grain and my goods, and then I'll say to myself, oh, I've got everything I need. Isn't this wonderful? And then tonight your life will be demanded of you, you fool. Then who will get all the things that you've stored up for yourself? So in other words, that even if we want to say with, to Calvin, our brother, our friend, our teacher, Lord have mercy on us, we want to push back against the theological picture that he's painting. Nonetheless, there is a pastoral concern here, which Calvin is no doubt motivated by, which we've got to hear. In a affluent and... Uh, wealthy 
world such as the one that we live in and I don't know about your personal circumstances, but I do know about the average around here in the West where I live. Uh, we are blessed beyond measure, and yet somehow we still manage to be acquisitive, and covetousness is never far from us. And Jesus uh, goes on uh, to generalize the lesson that he's taught this man. Verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He's talking to everybody. And he makes that clear in verse 22. He turns to his disciples, turns away from the crowd, turns to those who are following him and says, listen, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, about what you will eat, about your body, what you wear, and anxiety about possessions. Jesus wants to challenge. So if we were to go back to Calvin and just say, look, Okay, we have a conversation with him about the theological framework um, that is behind his uh, articulation of what he's saying here in chapter nine. I have a feeling that he put hands up and say, you know what, you're right, I've missed something here. But don't you agree that anxiety and covetousness and lusting for more is as much a problem in your 21st century America uh, as ever it was in 16th century Geneva. And I think we'd have to hold our hands up and say, yes, indeed it is. So that's chapter nine. Now, chapter 10, as I mentioned uh, briefly, depends quite heavily upon um, what he said in chapter nine. But nonetheless, um, the, uh, the upshot of it is uh, four rules which um, uh, Calvin gives for rightly using the possessions and blessings that we've received from the living God. Um, uh, the first one, again, I, I struggle with. I'm not entirely convinced by. I think it's based on something of a misreading of 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, but the second, third, and fourth are really, really fruitful and worth a moment or two. So here's the second. Uh, those who have narrow and slender resources should know how to go without things patiently lest they be troubled by an immoderate desire for them. That's uh, in section five. In other words, uh, his partial concern rises to the surface. Uh, those who have much and those who have little need to learn to bear with patience the frugality that the Lord in his providence has placed upon them. The third rule with which to regulate our use of earthly things is that we should be ready, quote Luke 16, to render account of your stewardship. Now, let me read a, uh, just a sentence or two from here because um, it is um, worth just bearing in mind. And this is especially hits home for those of us fortunate enough to live in circumstances which are basically comfortable and wealthy. Um, where do we begin? Uh, of it, we said something when we discussed the precepts of love. That was in chapter 7. We're talking about using everything uh, in a way that um, manifests love for others. It decrees that all those things were so given us by the kindness of God and so destined for our benefit that they are, as it were, entrusted to us and must we must one day render account of them. So we've got to uh, render account of how we've used all the things God has given us. Have we used these things to love others? Thus, therefore, we must so arrange it that this saying may continually resound in our ears. Render account of your stewardship, Luke 16. At the same time, let us remember by whom such reckoning is required, namely him who has greatly commended abstinence, sobriety, 
frugality, and moderation, and has also abominated excess pride, ostentation, and vanity, who approves no other distribution of good things than one joined with love, who has already condemned with his own lips all delights that draw man's spirit away from chastity and purity or befog the mind. Whatever we want to say about Calvin's slightly flaky eschatology in chapter 9, that's true. And so that's very helpful, I think, for us to remember. That's rule number three. And number four, the fourth rule that he mentions, I'm going to just spend a minute or two on this, but it's really intriguing. It has to do with um, what Calvin calls uh, the calling uh, which each of us has received. And here it's necessary to say a little bit uh, of background about uh, Calvin's doctrine of calling or vocation. Um, the Protestant reformers, you may know, uh, are, are well known for having recovered a biblical doctrine of vocation or calling by which they recognized that all of the good things that uh, we have been given to do in this life can be done to honor the living God. And it doesn't have to be spiritual work or uh, religious work or Christian work. Um, William Tyndale, I believe, was condemned, among other things, for uh, arguing that um, not only that we're justified by faith alone, that we should have the scriptures in our own language, but that uh, a shoemaker and a blacksmith and a carpenter are equally able to please God as a monk and a clergyman. Um, Calvin uh, and the later Protestant reformers had the same view, that uh, all lawful vocations are fruitful ways of serving God. And so sometimes when we're thinking about the Protestant doctrine of vocation, that's what we have in mind, that the things that we do, professions that we have, the, the way we spend our time, are all pleasing to God if we do them in a godly and faithful way. And that's all true. But Calvin has a slightly, well, he's got a slight twist in his doctrine of vocation, in a good way, I think. And there's been a whole bunch of writing on this. You can see a bunch of footnotes if you've got the Battles edition of the Institute's page uh, 724. A bunch of writing on Calvin's doctrine of vocation. He includes in calling or vocation not just what we do, but what our station in life is. And it appears about a quarter of the way down page 724. Each individual has his own kind of living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of sentry post, so that he may not heedlessly wander about through life. And he has in mind here not just our profession, our job, but our station. Uh, he's speaking in a culture where those uh, divisions between different classes of people, peasantry and gentry and rulers and uh, different levels in society, are perhaps more clear than they are today. But nonetheless, he has some interesting things to say, particularly as regards our relationship with political authorities. Let me read a word or two about this. Uh, he says, No deed is considered more noble, even among philosophers, than to free one's country from tyranny. And he thinks that's a good thing. But, he says, Yet a private citizen who lays his hand upon a tyrant is openly condemned by the heavenly judge. And the editors there cite 1 Samuel 24, and 26. You know what that's all about. It's all about David and Saul and so on. And David's refusal to lay his hand upon the Lord's anointed. David is the anointed king of Israel, and yet he refuses to act against even the tyrant king Saul. And this arises from Calvin's uh, belief that 
the station that we occupy in life is to be respected and taken seriously by us when we're thinking what to do with our lives because God has placed us in that station. And it's connected, obviously, to what he has to say about using material resources and using our time and using our wealth and so on because our wealth and so on are affected by our station in life. I'll just read one more little bit before we conclude. Um, If we have this right, Calvin says, no one impelled by his own rashness will attempt more than his calling will permit because he will know that it is not lawful to exceed its bounds. A man of obscure station will lead a private life ungrudgingly so as not to leave the rank in which he has been placed by God. Lead a quiet life, work hard with your hands so you would not be a burden to anybody, as Paul said. Calvin continues. Again, it will be no slight relief from cares, labours, troubles and other burdens for a man to know that God is his guide in all these things. The magistrate will discharge his function more willingly. The head of the household will confine himself to his duty. Each man will bear and swallow the discomforts, vexations, weariness and anxieties in his way of life when he has been persuaded that the burden was laid upon him by God. It's really interesting there. A head of a household, like a father, who has realised that God has placed him in that position as a father, may just be more ready to discharge that responsibility in a godly and faithful way, not getting out of his lane, not getting ideas above his station, when he realises that God has placed him there. He has not placed him as a civil magistrate. He's placed him as the head of his household. And that, as well as his material resources or lack of them, ought to affect and indeed to constrain the ambition with which he strives to change the world. Just change your own family, Calvin. uh, That seems to be the emphasis that he's focusing on. And then he ends up in the familiar place that you'd expect somebody who is a Uh, leading what has come to be known as the Reformation, to end up speaking about the doctrine of vocation. Final sentence. From this will arise a singular consolation, that no task will be so sordid and base, provided you obey your calling in it, that it will not shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. That's a great way to end Calvin's um, little mini treatise on the life of the Christian man. All the things that we're called to do by the living God, are considered worthy and honourable in the sight of the one who placed us in the calling where that responsibility is laid upon us. Well, I think that'll do us for now. Next time we have a, a bit of a departure. I've got an interview uh, with a uh, minister from the Philippines uh, in the following podcast, and then we're going to start a new series, uh, which I hope will be helpful uh, in a couple of weeks' time. But for now, the Lord bless you, and bye for now.